Let's pray together. God of strength, God of justice, you are our God, and we desire our yes to you to be deeper and more wholehearted. Open us now to the radical cry of Mary. Open us to hope, hope that we may have doubted could take root in our hearts and in our world. And speak your word by your Holy Spirit to us today. Come, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ, among and within your people. Amen. Have you noticed that sometimes you end up having some of your most significant conversations around your kitchen table, or while doing dishes with someone you care about, or maybe while preparing a meal with someone? Mary's visit to her relative Elizabeth, which just precedes the, um, the great song that we just heard Emma recite, Mary's visit to um, Elizabeth is in this kind of setting. Two women meeting in one of their homes, where Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, just happens to be taking an involuntary time of silence for about nine months after his encounter with the angel Gabriel. So the setting for Elizabeth's generous blessing and powerful words of blessing upon seeing Mary, the mother of God's anointed one, and the setting for Mary's outburst of praise that is our text today is not in Jerusalem, in the temple. It's not in King Herod's enormous palace but it's in the hills of Judea, in a humble home, at the beginning of an extended three-month stay, where Mary, in this visit, has a chance to ask her questions and Elizabeth to offer wise counsel. They have time to encourage one another and talk and eat and sing and pray together without interruption as they trust in God's goodness to them and to their people. And yet this hymn that Luke records and places on Mary's lips resists any kind of domestication. Mary's song has been called revolutionary and dangerous, and for good reason. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was writing as a resistor in Nazi Germany, called it the most passionate, wildest Advent hymn ever sung. And for a time in the 1980s in Guatemala, which was a time of brutal armed conflict, which included intense state violence and terror against common people, during that time, the public reciting of Mary's song was banned, which is an especially significant move for this traditionally Catholic country because Praying the Magnificat aloud is part of daily um, 
daily evening prayers in Catholic settings or in a lot of them. This song that has been called the great New Testament song of liberation. Mary's no to oppression and yes to God's unfolding realm of well-being and justice is in good company. It echoes the songs and prophecies of God's people throughout their history and and embedded in the historical memory of the Hebrew people. Just like Hagar, who was sent away and out in the wilderness, just like the enslaved people in Egypt, their experience of God, like Mary, is a God who sees, who notices, notices their pain, notices their heavy load, and cares and responds. And so Mary experiences that God has seen and noticed and cared about her lowly and scorned status as an unmarried pregnant woman. And not only noticed, but has acted to save and rescue and set her free and set free all people who are bearing this load of oppression. And so Mary takes her place in the line of Hebrew prophets along with Israel's female prophets who sang joyfully of God's deliverance centuries before her, Miriam bearing the same name when the people came out of Egypt with her tambourine singing joyfully. And like Isaiah's words of good news and encouragement to the people, when they may have doubted God's goodness to them, when they may have doubted the truth of their deliverance, these promises to repair the city, and replant the fields. And so the people throughout their life together throughout the centuries, and now Mary, sees God as being in, in outrage over the degradation of, of life, and that they receive God's promise to repair the world. And so Mary, knowing great suffering, and knowing economic insecurity and living on the inside of oppression rejoices in spite of everything. Having had this encounter with her relative Elizabeth, an older sister in faith, and having the authority to bless her, and because she has had an encounter with the living God, who saw her situation and knew her oppression and called her favored, she breaks into this radical and life-affirming praise. To us, maybe this good news is unbelievable. Mary's exuberant joy and confidence don't make any sense apart from a powerful experience of being noticed and lifted up by the creator of all things the just and compassionate God of her ancestors. This is not a superficial joy, but is written against the whole canvas of the world's pain. And this is a joy that knows and understands pain and knows that resistance to the powers will come by way of death before there is new life.
Mary knows this, and Luke knows this. During Advent, as I've thought about Mary, I've, I've tried to travel these days with her and with her song. And so I've been reading it over and over and over. Um, most days I've been reading it. And in that reading and rereading, the phrases that have stood out to me most have been this, this declaration that God has unseated tyrants from their thrones and lifted high the lowly, and that God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich ones away empty. Mary's song probably makes most of us squirm if we're actually listening, and it should. Martin Luther wrote in his commentary on this song, the mightier you are, the more must you fear. The lowlier you are, the more must you take comfort. So perhaps as we see some of our valued institutions and structures changing, both in our society and in the church, maybe some of them even falling apart or being actively dismantled. I wonder if this has a kind of divine leveling effect that Mary sung about. And at the very least, maybe those of us who have been relatively comfortable have a chance to come to grips with the limits of our own power and to clarify our own deepest yeses. This vision Mary has of God reigning over the powers, unseating the tyrants, and meeting people in their daily needs, filling the hungry with food. Maybe this is an invitation to those of us who are used to making things happen. I wonder if even our sense of responsibility for bringing justice in the world actually impedes or blocks our capacity for hope because we think that so much of it is up to us. I wonder if instead of focusing on what we can or can't do or can or can't make happen in the world, if we focused on our, our receptivity to this mighty one who has done great things for the lowly. I wonder if this is an invitation to remove the barriers that are in us and in our lives, barriers to a deeper connection with the God of Mary and Isaiah and Luke and Jesus, the God of justice and mercy. Most of us are really not much like Mary. Most of us here are not part of a minority ethnic and religious group that is suspect and routinely denied rights. Most of us are not poor. And mostly we don't have any fear of violence in our daily lives. And yet, even though Mary experienced all of those things and all of those threats in her daily existence, 
Somehow she seems inwardly free. Free enough to offer her yes. To an invitation that must have been frightening for her. So I wonder, I think that one of our yeses must continue to be a yes to listening to those who are closest to the pain, as Todd said not long ago. A yes to listening to those closest to the pain. Which might mean for us, we literally have to clear space. In our calendars, in our homes, we might actually have to do less in order to allow Christ to come again in us, we might have to um, say no to some of the things that seem urgent or pressing, to come alongside people whose daily lives are similar to Mary and Elizabeth. It happens maybe in a small way as you light your Advent candle at home or at work or as you gather for a meal. In our inward posture of receptivity, even that small move inwardly can make a huge difference in our availability to God and to God's movement in the world. This is not to say that we don't have anything to do. Certainly Mary didn't simply open her heart to God, but her whole life. She certainly had labor to perform, as anyone who has dealt with children or has labored on behalf of children in any capacity knows. But in coming to this woman among uh, among other poor Galileans and in the birth of Jesus, God is up to something which is truly revolutionary. Although it didn't seem to have an immediate result on the world stage because the immediate reality was what could be seen in the bodies of Elizabeth and Mary. Their bodies became or were sacred locations of divine action for setting people free. And in their joyful and amazed and prophetic words, we hear the kind of hope that can endure even death on the way to God's dream being fulfilled. But after this burst of joy and praise for God coming to turn the world right side up, each of these women went about the work of carrying these babies, of feeding them, and teaching them about the goodness and mercy and justice and hope of God. Elizabeth was likely too old to see John and Jesus' ministries. She probably didn't see very much of the fruit of the hope that she trusted God was bringing. And as we know, Mary endured the searing pain of witnessing the violence of the empire come down on her son in full force. But they said yes in trust, not seeing all of the redemption that God was bringing. And they continued to say yes. Not once, not twice, but continuing to make space in themselves, in their homes, and in their lives for the new things God was up to in them 
and their people and for the world. These, this phrase, the rich ones sent away empty, might be one of the most difficult ones for, for some of us. What do you mean, sent away? Isn't God's mercy for everyone? But I wondered again this week if perhaps our hope lies in being emptied. And I don't, I don't say this lightly because that's been misused in the church, especially being aimed toward women. You just need to deny yourself in some extreme way and, and then all will be well. But rather, this, there is a deep wisdom here that perhaps, perhaps especially those who have much, whether it's having a natural ability or an abundance of comfort or even the ease of being well-respected, perhaps our best chance at living with a true and deep hope, the kind of hope that made even this poor and oppressed woman of Galilee shout for joy. Perhaps our best chance lies in a kind of emptying, both an inward making space and an emptying of the material things that bog us down and truly do get in the way. Just as Mary had space in her spirit to receive the angel's message and to receive God's call to her and space in her own body for God's anointed, that her yes created this space. How are we, even with our very bodies, making space for God's coming, for the justice of God to be real among us and in our world? How are both our yeses and our noes opening space for hope in our lives? Space for God to come unannounced. If we're over-scheduled, we certainly don't have much time for anything unannounced. Space to befriend someone who understands in their daily life and in their body the need for tyrants to be unseated from their thrones. The dream of all hungry ones being filled and those who abuse power having thrones pulled out from under them are not illusions, but give us a glimpse of what is really real, of the direction of God's constant, hopeful, powerful work in the world. And if people like me who have more than we need give ourselves the time to listen to the dreams of people who have little, people who are sidelined and pushed out in whatever way. And if we allow ourselves to be truly affected by their realities, by their lives and their hopes. If, imagine if poor and rich together might dream the dream of God's future and make ourselves vulnerable to the power of that future, we would be transformed. And like Mary, pregnant with hope, 
we would move together into a world where our bodily hungers and the hunger for God's justice are filled. Let it be so. Come, Lord Jesus.